Thank you for joining us for Outfront Magazine. My name is Michael Cisneros. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Outfront Magazine. My name is Michael Cisneros. This is the reading for November 28th. Today I'll be reading the following three articles and others. Camp Christmas to feature campy fashion show by Raisa Trammell. TV review, Doctor Who special. The Star Beast offers unsatisfying conclusions once again by the Julie River. Riley of Shrimp Nose talks musical inspiration, touring, and vaping by Julie River. Camp Christmas to feature campy fashion show. The Denver Center for the Performing Arts, in collaboration with Off Center and Meow Wolf, will be hosting a special campy reverse fashion show on November 28, 2023, during their Camp Christmas experience. The reverse fashion show will be broken into two parts, a young segment and an adult segment, which are held back-to-back. The show is spread throughout the grounds so that guests can experience the exhibits while admiring all of the glorious outfits. Designers will show off their campy designs throughout Camp Christmas, and guests will get to take in all of the fun fashion while exploring an eclectic yuletide wonderland. Adult designers participating in the show this year include Meow Wolf's Kate Major of Factory Fashion, who will be displaying whimsical designs in the Fairyland Room. Sky Barker Ma of Sky Air will be displaying retro chic fashions in the Beauty Camp Room. Other designers who will be present include Charlie Price of Vintage Memories, the Victorian Romanian of Victorian, Mad Van Design of Sweetsville Studio, Maria Margot Couture of Silver and Snow, Tyne Hall of Pink, Musa Mahoney of Gift Orama, and Rachel Marie Hurst of Baroque. Camp Christmas is hosted by the Denver Center for the Performing Arts at the Stanley Marketplace in Aurora, Colorado. It is designed by Lonnie Hansen, who, in collaboration with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, Off Center, and Meow Wolf, and seeks to blend entertainment with experience. The experience boasts 15,000 square feet of 360 kaleidoscope surrealist chair, including things to do for everyone, including pictures with Santa for the kiddos and craft cocktails for the adults. VIP drag queen experiences are also offered on select days, and several nights have their own theme, including dress like Santa and ugly Christmas sweaters. Even the grinchiest of guests are sure to have a smile on their face at the end of this experience. TV review, Doctor Who special, The Star Beast, offers unsatisfying conclusions once again. Rating 80 out of 100. British science fiction show, Doctor Who, is absolutely my whole life. I love science fiction and fantasy, and I particularly love shows focused around morally good characters who want to set things right in the universe. What's more, a show that constantly replaces its lead actor opens up infinite possibilities, and seeing new actors play the Doctor every few years is exciting. In in case you were wondering, I chose the name Julie River in honor of my favorite character in the show, the Doctor's badass wife, River Song. 
That being said, my opinions on Doctor Who aren't necessarily in line with popular opinions. Most fans of the modern Doctor Who prefer the first four seasons, which were run by showrunner Russell T. Davies, creator of Queer as Folk and It's a Sin, and complain about the subsequent two showrunners, Steve Moffat and Chris Chidnall, bringing the show down in quality. Personally, I couldn't disagree more. Davies' era of Doctor Who was full of deus ex machinas and poorly written women, while it's impossible to deny the powerful charisma of the 10th Doctor, David Tennant. Who was the Doctor for most of the Davies era? Davies' writing is just fell flat. Stephen Moffat, who started out as a member of the writing staff before being promoted to showrunner, is by far my favorite showrunner of the series with his wild imagination and satisfying conclusions. Chris Chibnall, the most hated of the three showrunners, is wildly underrated and deserves a lot of credit for being the first showrunner with the guts to cast a woman as the Doctor. Well, it would seem that nostalgia has won the day, because starting with this year's three-part 60th anniversary special, Davies returns to his role as showrunner, and as a particularly cheap gimmick, Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor regenerated back into David Tennant again. Giving Davies a chance to revisit his glory days as the head of the show, and with the return of Tennant and Davies comes the return of my least favorite companion, Donna Noble. I realize I'm speaking pure blasphemy for most Whovians, but Donna Noble is a terribly written character. She's merely an assemblage of bad stereotypes about women. She chose her job based on how likely it was to land her husband, and she obsesses over her appearance, age, and weight like she's that character, Kathy from the comic strips. Granted, Donna Noble is played by a brilliant comic actor, and she manages to inject a lot of charm into a poorly written character, but make no mistake, it's Tate's acting and not Davies' writing that makes Donna a likable character. In her last appearance on the show, there was a convoluted plot in which Donna's memory of the Doctor had to be erased to save her life, making for one of the most unpopular narrative points in the entire Davies era, so at the very least, reuniting David Tennant and Catherine Tate gives Davies the ability to fix one of his greatest writing mistakes of his tenure. In the Starbeast, the first of the three 60th anniversary specials of the show, the newly regenerated 14th Doctor manages to run into his old friend Donna again almost 15 years after he lost Sar. In the years, Donna has had a transgender daughter named Rose, who she's fiercely protective over. But when a spaceship lands in London, the doctor tries to help the alien inside the ship, an adorable little creature called the Meep, return to safety without Donna remembering what she shouldn't. But it is possible that all is not what it seems. For the most part, the show's first official trans character, not counting Time Lords who have changed gender, which seems like it could count, was handled pretty respectfully. The word transgender doesn't even come up in this episode, and yet you can tell that Rose is a transgender character because school bullies dead name her and mock her. 
Donna and her mother have a conversation about making mistakes around pronouns, and Rose is the first person to call out the doctor for incorrectly assuming an alien's pronouns. But there's one big, if well-intentioned, mistake in how the trans character is handled, and to explain it, I'm going to have to get a little spoilery. One of the episodes twists, in fact, the resolution to a 15-year-old long story arc revolves around Rose being non-binary, which is not what I thought she was. Everything else in the episode has hinted at Rose being binary trans girl. Her pronouns are she and her. She goes by a distinctly femme name, and she's referred to by her own father as his daughter and a girl. And to the best of my knowledge, the actress is trans but does not use the term non-binary to describe herself. Now, as a trans person, I realize that each person's expression and identity is their own choice, and none of what I said rules out the possibility of the character identifying as non-binary. But it really felt like a result of a cis writer writing for a trans character and not quite getting their language correct. At the very least, there should have been mention of the phrase non-binary before it became central to the episode's resolution. Furthermore, bringing in Rose's gender identity is the episode's climactic scene felt unnecessary. The whole thing could have been resolved perfectly well without any mention of her gender identity entering into it. Instead, it felt like Russell T. Davies wanted to make being trans into some sort of superpower, which is a tad condescending. This is not to say that I'm not thankful for the trans representation in Doctor Who episode, especially consider it's coming from the UK, where TERF views are a bit more mainstream than they are here in the US, but it felt like Davies didn't run his, this script past a lot of trans people who had potentially pointed out the problems to him. The episode also strangely ignores established canon. The character of the Meep, who is a central part of this episode, is clearly the same character as Beep the Meep, who has appeared multiple times in Doctor Who comics and audiobooks. In fact, this whole episode is a loose adaptation of Beep the Meep's first appearance. A fourth Doctor comic strip from 1980 called The Doctor Who and the Star Beast, while it's debatable if the comics count as part of canon, the audiobooks are well established as being canonical. The BBC confirms as much in the Doctor Who magazine in 1999 when the audiobooks first began, and it was further confirmed following the 50th anniversary mini-episode, Night of the Doctor, where the eight Doctor regenerates into the War Doctor and, in its final moments, lists off all of his companions from the audiobooks. Thus, if the Meep's previous appearances are officially canon, there's no good reason that the Doctor shouldn't recognize the Meep. But unsatisfying conclusions and defying canon are fairly par for the course with Davies's writing. Did he show any signs of improvement? Well, yes, most notably that for all my problems with Donna Noble before, Donna Noble, as a fiercely protective mama bear of her trans child, is much more endearing than the Donna Noble of old. Additionally, there was a lot of great humor in the episode. While the conclusion was anticlimactic, the journey to get there was fun. But in the end, all of the flaws that were characteristic of the Davies era have returned with him, and I don't see those flaws being fixed anytime soon. 
Riley of Shrimp Nose talks musical inspiration, touring, and vaping. Shrimp Nose is a Minnesotan-born electronic hip-hop DJ and a producer based out of Los Angeles, California. OFM sat down with Shrimp Nose, a.k.a. Riley Smithson, on the night of his tour kickoff in Denver, Colorado. Thank you, Riley, for sitting down with us. To start off, could you give us a quick background on you and your style of music? Shrimp Nose. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up playing drums. My dad got me a drum kit when I was like four years old, and I took lessons for a couple of years, but I kind of like got more into video games for a couple of years, and then I came back into it like in middle school. I got really obsessed with it, like Metallica, oddly enough. It was like the thing that kind of like sucked me back into it. But um, yeah, I just got really obsessed with learning how to play songs I liked. And that eventually led to electronic music. You said that Metallica got you into drums and making music. Who or what inspired you to get into electric dance music? It's a pretty funny story, so I honestly don't even know if my mom and dad know this part of the story. So if they find this, it's going to be kind of funny. So, like, in my senior year of high school, 13 of my friends and I took shrooms at my house, and my friend played the song about you. I know it's kind of an older song, but I had never heard it. Melodic electronic stuff... I'd only been familiar with, like, these big, heavy bass. And, yeah, shrooms made me susceptible, I guess. <clears throat> are you familiar with OFM? Yeah, love it. We are Colorado's LGBTQ plus publication and media here to amplify queer voices and help connect folks to the community. I'd like to ask, in your life, how do you like to support the community? Or do you have anyone in your life that's part of it? Yeah, one of my best friends is bisexual. I talk to him every day on the phone. We FaceTime for like six hours, literally every day. There are plenty of friends of mine I've worked with and collaborated with and have always supported their journeys. But yeah, I mean, just being like basically a straight white man, you know there's only so much I can feel I can do for myself. But I have a good handful of friends within the community. I worked on an album with K Radio years ago. She's a really great R&B singer. We did a kind of like electronic R&B album and the world weeps. We came up in Minneapolis together. Jumping into your new album a little bit, what was your message to go behind it while creating it? And now that it is live, what's been some of the feedback you've gotten? Well, so I made this album just last year or two and I got really big into Alex G and like Elliot Smith, and I tried to make that kind of an album through the lens of electronic music. That hadn't really been done, so I started singing. I'd never really sung before or written my own lyrics. I got more into guitar. I've always played, but I got really sort of obsessed with it this last year and just learning cool chord shapes, you know. Anything to kind of help develop your game and improve on it, it's really cool to see what instruments you use. Yeah, absolutely. Going off of that for the new album, with this being your first stop at your tour, what are some goals you have or anything specific you're excited for on the tour? 
The one thing that's really cool is I get to tour on a handful of these dates with Gold Panda, and I grew up listening to him. It's like such a professional-like, fanboy, gratifying thing to me. Any fun hobbies or like side jobs as a DJ? I love boxing. I like to train and watch boxing. I play VR boxing. I'm like kind of obsessed. What flavor is your vape? I feel that tells a lot about a person. Watermelon ice. I love that one. Definitely respect the ice. The fun thing is I didn't even start vaping until a month ago, trying to smoke less spliffs. I'm trying to temper my habits a little bit. You mentioned some artists. What are some big artists and even small artists that you would love to work with in the future or possibly in the works with that we can maybe get a sneak peek on? On my new album, I had a lot of like personally really gratifying collaborations. Like I got collaborations with Blockhead, Ryan Hemsworth, Blue. I grew up listening to all three. And I put some of my friends that I worked with these days on it. So it felt like it was a really cool way to bridge like what I came up listening to, to where I am just like felt very authentic. From what I'm gathering, this album has been reminiscent in a way on how you can connect your past with your present. Very much of a closing and opening up some chapters in your life. That's really awesome to see. Yeah, it's very like personal, self-reflective thing. I hope it doesn't come off as so self-important just writing about my life. Yeah, definitely not. I feel like, at least as a fan, I love seeing an artist connecting with their audience by showing their personality and what they listened to growing up. All those correlations and seeing how it molds them and shapes their music, I feel like with you, especially working on this album, it's just a lot of that. It's something I commend you for. How long have you been DJing? Do you like being on the road? So I've been producing for about 10 years, and I've kind of just did, like, local shows for a long time. Until, honestly, after the pandemic, it was when I started to, like, get some national opportunities. So, yeah, I've been touring now for, I think, the first tour I did was with Blockhead in 2021. So it's been about two years, and it's just truly just like every year it keeps getting better. Thank you so much, Riley, for taking the time with us. Where are your next shows? We have December 7th in Dallas, Deep Alum, December 22nd, Fargo at the Aquarium, December 28th in Minneapolis, First Avenue, and January 12th in D.C., Union Stage. I am so thankful I am having an opportunity to play music to people. It feels very gratifying. UK Museum recognizes Roman Emperor as a trans woman by Owen Swallow. Everyone's favorite pastime, thinking about the Roman Empire, as more of a queer twist than you might think. According to a British museum, this is more true now than ever. In Hitchin, a sleepy English town just north of London, the North Herefordshire Museum has identified that the Roman Empire, Alagabalus, was a transgender woman. The museum's decision to comes with the revelation of historical texts where the Roman Empire allegedly said, Call me not Lord, for I am a lady. At least, that is according to the account of Cassius Dio, a prominent Roman historian active circa 200 AD. With this decision, the English Museum will now refer to 
Alagabalus as feminine pronouns. Alagabalus, as a teenager, ruled as a Roman emperor from 218 to 222 AD before she was ultimately assassinated. We try to be sensitive to identifying pronouns for people in the past, as we are for people in the present. It is only polite and respectful, said Keith Hoskins, an executive member for the Enterprise and Arts of North Hertz Council, which helps run the museum. We know that Alagalabalus identified as a woman and was explicit about which pronouns to use, which shows that pronouns are not a new thing. The museum's decision has some experts split on the matter. This is a tricky area in the ancient world as it is now, says historian and author Mary Beard. What is said by Romans about Alagalabalus powerfully reminds us that debates about the boundaries between male and female go back thousands of years. We are not the first generation to have those debates. Beard is a trustee of the British Museum and the author of Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. Furthermore, some queer historians like Hugh Ryan have noted that using modern terminology to describe historical figures simplifies and erases the way people in the past saw gender and sexuality. Alagalibulus shows a precarious position in Roman history. It is known that the emperor both married men and women on separate occasions, but there is historical consensus on the emperor's pronouns. The museum based their decision off of statements made by Dio, who lived during Alagalibulus's reign and whose writing on the history of Rome has provided scholars with a detailed perspective on Roman life and politics. The museum further referenced a text alleging that Alagalibulus asked about surgical procedures that would be considered gender-affirming. Some scholars argue that these texts were written by Dio and other figures might have been referring to the Roman Empire with female characteristics, alleging Alagalibulus was termed wife, mistress, or queen as a means of criticizing their rule. Beard notes that Dio was referred to other emperors as woman, such as Nero. Debates on gender and sexuality are not new to history, and certainly are not new to discussions of ancient Rome. Hoskins defends the museum's decision to recognize Alagalibulus as a woman and recognize that the emperor preferred feminine pronouns because texts explicitly note the emperor's use of pronouns. The North Hertfordshire Museum has a coin with a depiction of Alagalibulus on its LGBTQ plus section. Japan Hospital Denies LGBTQ Women Support for IVF Pregnancy by Claire Sung A woman who became pregnant through in vitro fertilization was recently denied treatment at a hospital in Japan. An LGBTQ plus advocacy group is now calling on the government to ensure equal access to medical support for all pregnant women. Japan requires women to be in a heterosexual relationship in order to access IVF, leading to many pursuing such treatment overseas. In addition, a notable lack of legislation regarding donated sperm has led many Japanese hospitals to be very wary about accepting pregnant women. This particular woman, who is in the same gender relationship, became pregnant through IVF. However, when she went to the hospital for a checkup, she was turned away. According to the hospital's ethics committee, the case was an unprecedented situation. 
and so the institution decided to refuse the woman its services. Kotomap, a Tokyo-based organization dedicated to LGBTQ plus advocacy, called on the Japanese government to ensure that all women, regardless of their marital status or how they became pregnant, can receive appropriate obstetrics treatments. According to the representatives, occurrences such as these happen because of prejudice or even simple lack of understanding when it comes to LGBTQ plus healthcare. Kochi Takahashi, a senior official who helped manage the request, agreed. He ensured Kotomap that the government would send notices to hospitals hoping to avoid a repeat of the situation in the future. Unfortunately, LGBTQ plus healthcare in Japan is often in jeopardy. A law which required transgender citizens to be sterilized was only recently ruled unconstitutional, and Japan is the only G7 nation that doesn't legally recognize same gender unions. Though hopefully recent rulings in district courts may change that, this spring the government was asked to pass a law promoting understanding of LGBTQ plus community, but the final bill that went through came with a few guarantees of change. But hopefully, with organizations such as Kotomap fighting for equality, we can start to see progress. Scottish government announces non-binary equality plan by Claire Song. The Scottish government has announced a first-of-its-kind plan to improve the lives of non-binary people. This five-year plan, which aims to greatly increase equality and reduce non-binary discrimination in all aspects of life, has been well received by LGBTQ plus organizations and charities. In 2020, the Scottish government decided not to extend legal recognition to people with non-binary identities. In response, the Scottish government's working group, a non-binary equality and organization comprising of academics, charity leaders, and non-binary people, published a report on the state of non-binary rights and oppression recommending that these actions be taken to greatly improve equality in Scotland. Those recommendations were taken to the Scottish Government, which published the Non-Binary Equality Action Plan on November 16th. Some of the improvements the plan aims to make include training in fertility, preservation, and non-binary health care needs. In addition, the plan commits to removing barriers from participation in governmental decision-making, including making name-changing process easier and researching paths to the legal recognition of non-binary identities. Over the course of five years, the aim is for the plan to contribute to improving the lives of non-binary people in Scotland and begin to tackle some of the challenges that were currently faced in their everyday lives in the Worlds of Equalities Minister Emma Roderick. Scotland has historically been ahead of the curve in terms of LGBTQ plus acceptance. In 2021, it became the first nation in the world to officially teach LGBTQ plus history in classrooms. Nonetheless, the Non-Binary Equality Action Plan has been a long time coming and well received. Seven national LGBTQ plus charities and organizations, including Stonewall Scotland, Equality Network, and LGBT Youth Scotland, have welcomed the plan with open arms. Vic Valentine, a manager of Scottish Trans, says it is really positive to see this action plan published and to see that the Scottish government has made public concrete and measurable commitments to changes that will make non-binary people's lives better. We look forward to working with non-binary people across Scotland to challenge the government to turn these commitments into a real change. 
Thank you again for joining us for Outfront Magazine. My name is Michael Cisneros. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. Thank you again for joining us for Outfront Magazine. My name is Michael Cisneros.